This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Why do you think that Joshua isn't featured prominently in most people's regular Bible reading or even in maybe a series in a church uh, preaching? Well, I think Joshua uh, is vulnerable to a pick-and-choose approach because if you actually sit down to read it from chapter 1 onward, um, it, it becomes exceedingly bloody by the time you get to the 8th chapter with its report of the campaign and the executions of the Canaanites, just repeated again. And Joshua put them all, man, soul, and child, and cattle to the sword, something like that. And if you're not thoroughly disgusted at that point with the bloodshed, at least modern readers after the 20th century ought to be thoroughly disgusted Mm -hmm. with the bloodshed. You give up. But if you press on, then you immediately get into tedious chapters describing the distribution of the land uh, to the various tribes. And um, the um, um, even if you try to locate a lot of these place names on a map, a lot of them aren't identified and can't be discovered. And it's, it's all mm-hmm. very vague and um, perplexing. Uh, and then finally, you get to the end of the book uh, and so forth. The result of that, I think, turns off a lot of readers, and as a result, you get a kind of, like I said, a pick-and-choose approach to Joshua, where you can pick up great verses like, be strong, be courageous. Uh, the Lord is the one who fights for you, right? And and so forth. You can get that that kind of thing out of it. But I think in the process, you overlook a lot of the drama of the narrative, a lot of the uh, tensions and conflicts in the narrative that are being patiently resolved as the, mm-hmm. as the book develops to its dramatic conclusion, in which Joshua says to the assembled tribes, you can't do it, you can't do it, you know, uh, and so forth. So um, that's, I think, one of the reasons why Joshua is a perplexity other than cherry-picking Bible verses out of it. And that phrase, be strong and courageous, which originates in Deuteronomy and gets echoed a few times in, or, or alluded to or cited a few times in uh, Joshua, what exactly uh, are they supposed to be strong and courageous about? Because I could imagine people thinking, oh, you have to be strong and courageous to carry out this act of God. Uh, you might even think if you have to, if you visualize what's being described, I don't know if strength or courage or nose holding or closing your eyes and acting, uh, but be strong <laughs> and courageous just to carry this out. Um, what, what do you think the strength and courage is required for there? You know, one of the assets I bring as a commentator on the book of Joshua, one of my subfields is uh, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. Hmm. And so I bring that knowledge bank to bear on my reading of Joshua. And there was at one point during the killings on the Russian front that Heinrich Himmler flew to the to to witness a killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, 
in the aftermath that he addressed his troops who had the murderers and he told them that they had to be strong and courageous because oh. they were doing the dirty work for the salvation of Germany. And mm. we've not lost our honor or our integrity in doing this dirty work um, and so forth. It's just outrageous to study this. And I think that's exactly the wrong way to read Joshua. Mm. Strong and courageous means to fight this war under the leadership of the Lord by obedience to the Torah. That is the, you, you mentioned that the verse comes from Deuteronomy. The book of Joshua is in many ways uh, commenting on the theology of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's trying to exposit what it means to be strong and courageous by Torah obedience. So the very opening of the book of Joshua is so curious in this regard, because to ordinary military strategy, Joshua is doing crazy things. Mm -hmm. he, he gets the Israelites across the Jordan River, and then he lays the entire army, having circumcised them as adult males. Now, if any spies from Jericho could have said, let's sally forth, we can lay them waste like Judah did uh, in the book of Genesis. Um, and then when he actually begins the campaign against Jericho, how do they, do they build a siege ramp? Do they approach with battering rams? No, they march in a liturgical parade in circles around the city, displaying all their strength or lack of strength to the enemy. And once yeah. again, counterintuitive militarily. I mean, I think counterintuitive is a polite term for what's, what's being <laughs> described. I mean, it really is, especially if you've been to Jericho. You know, I think one of the striking things that when you're standing at Jericho, you realize, oh, wait, you can see, you know, we, we imagine them coming from Shatim uh, across, uh, coming down the mountains into the uh, Jordan Valley. I, I didn't think until the first time I was there, I didn't realize like, oh, this is all an open view of Jericho, like th them coming down, them amassing at the Jordan. They don't even have to go for a long distance and travel and figure it out. Like they can see the camp directly in front of them. So the fact right. that they hobbled themselves for a few weeks uh, with circumcision uh, is like, who does this? Who <laughs> who walks around and, you know, yeah, it's it's – and then – who goes to war uh, and doesn't get any of the spoil? Like all the motivations to go to war, all the normal strategies of war, everything is, is backwards, up is down, right? Right, and that is continued in the very next episode, the Battle at Ai, because mm. there oh, yeah. Joshua is kind of saying, oh, this really works, and he doesn't mm. consult the Lord, mm. and he had devises his own strategy and sends his soldiers uh, to Ai, and they get routed. Mm. Right? And and so he's thinking that he's got this mastered and he doesn't realize that this entire warfare is to be conducted in obedience to the Lord by obedience yeah. to his Torah. That's interesting. The, yeah, the extension of that kind of Torah obedience, which you think you would think they would have learned uh, <laughs> from their parents and Moses, uh, all the things that came before. But they do, you know, I was talking about this with my class the other day as we were talking through Joshua. They do experience their own kind of version of the Exodus. Uh, of you know, they have a the water crossing, and uh, they have manna ceases instead of begins. It ceases as soon as they touch the fields of Jericho. Um, why do you think, in your own you know, in your own culminate? Feel free to speculate widely here. Why do you think those children experienced something similar? They went across on dry ground and. Uh, they had, you know, an appearance from the, the the commander of the army of God. 
what was the point of that for them? Why couldn't they just say, yeah, yeah, our parents told us about all of this? Well, that's an open question. Did their parents tell them all about oh, it? That, that's <laughs> you know? true. Actually, the reason they're getting circumcised is because their parents failed to do that, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. And, uh, of course, the crossing of the Jordan River has all sorts of echoes of the Red Sea passing, mm-hmm. the Exodus, and, and so forth. And it's meant, I think, to renew the knowledge of the saving God of the Exodus, the Lord who delivers the people with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm and Mm. so forth. It's meant to renew that entire sense that the obedience to the Torah is obedience to God the liberator. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, have no other gods, right? Mm. That's being reinforced and reiterated with the crossing of the Jordan, uh, to be sure. Um, Yeah, and so they come across the Jordan and they come to Jericho. And and really, Jericho, and there's only a few battles where we get any details. uh, And the rest of it is is elided a little bit. but at Jericho, we do get some of the details. We also get a house of salvation, in, in, uh, just like you know, the houses marked with blood in, uh, in the Exodus, you have uh, Rahab's house um, that is marked with salvation. Um, what do you make of these editorial comments, uh, just thinking about where Joshua, you know, when this account is written uh, that nobody really knows and what's going on, but the, the little editorial comments like, and her family is with uh, Israel to this day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's extremely important to understanding the theologic theology of the Book of Joshua. Hmm. First of all, Rahab is a Canaanite, and she's not a reputable Canaanite woman, mm-hmm. right? She's got a bad reputation, and yet Rahab uh, um, proves to be a better confessor of the Lord than the spies whom she shelters and delivers, hmm. right? Um, she makes a confession that the Lord is the, is the true God, and she casts her fate uh, uh, with uh, Israel uh, as a traitor to her own city-state, uh, and she uh, deceives on behalf of the spies and, and saves them and so forth. <clears throat> and so the significance of this, of course, is that um, this is a violation of the command to harem warfare. Harem warfare is the commandment in modern language to exterminate all survivors, which is particularly appalling to modern sensibilities after the 20th century. It's also a real big problem for Jew- contemporary Jewish reading of the book of Joshua. Right. The awful thought, did the Western world learn genocide from a book of the Hebrew Bible? It's a, that's an awful thought, and I'm not sure it's it's true that that's where it was learned at all. But the thought uh, haunts contemporary Jewish understanding of the book of Joshua. Mm. Uh, what we have to see here is that the, the law of harem warfare um, contravenes the usual motives for going to war in the ancient Near East. You go to war in the ancient Near East for booty. The purpose of going to war is not to um, uh, take territory uh, so much as to uh, reduce the possibility of resistance by slaughtering the males who could be warriors and taking the women, the children, and the livestock as booty and precious metals and so forth and so on. Um, So that's why an ordinary 
warrior would go to war in the ancient Near East. And then if they did defeat a country, they would usually colonize it in some sense or turn it into a into a, a satellite state or something mm -hmm. like that, or it would have to be yoked uh, as a, sub, a subjugated nation to the conqueror. Uh, none of that is happening in Joshua's warfare. None of it. Harem warfare forbids uh, booty. Uh, and it commands not simply the normal extermination of the males, but categorically the extermination of all. Why? To prevent taking the survivors captive as slaves. That would be a major incentive for warfare. Is And that is exactly what's excluded by harem warfare. So having that understanding in the background, uh, what is really interesting about this first major episode in the book of Joshua is that in violation of harem command to exterminate categorically all people in Jericho, Rahab is spared. Mm. And Rahab is a Canaanite who becomes a confessor of the Lord and a savior of the Lord's people by her betrayal of the Canaanite city-state and so mm. forth. Yeah, I mean, it calls back to, you know, Genesis 18 and 19, where, you know, if there's any righteous in Sodom, would you spare it? You know, if there are 10, you know, where God says, yeah, yeah, if there are 10, come to find out there weren't even 10. <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm trying to think there's another one that fits this category that slipped my mind. Uh, but this, oh, uh, King Abimelech, where, you know, God comes and says, you're a dead man. He says, you know, but I'm innocent, and you know, my, I, my, I'm innocent <laughs> in the integrity of my heart. Would you kill an innocent man? And God says, you're no, you're, you're right, because I didn't let you touch her. Um, so there is this kind of through line of uh, there are people who can be spared despite uh, the judgment that's surely coming. Um, there's a there's a, a wonderful little play. I don't know how wonderful it is. It's difficult to watch, um, but it's been made into a BBC one-hour movie called God on Trial. I don't know if you've seen that uh, movie. No, I haven't. Oh, it's it's probably worth watching. I don't know what you would think about it since you're an expert in the topic, but um, that it's in Auschwitz. It's in uh, it's in one of the houses. That it's a group of men who are getting you know their number is next to go to the ovens. Um, and so they hold a trial as to whether God is worth worshiping or not, whether he's, you know, real, whether whether he's done them wrong. And a man gives up and gives a very powerful speech from the Torah, from the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, and at one point in the speech, he asks this question about all of these people that God is exterminating. He says, what did they do? What could they have done that was so wrong that God would annihilate them? Um, and I think that's one of the features that's missing from the book of Joshua, is it doesn't say what any of these people did that were that deserved this. Um, how do you fill in that void? Right, it's a wonderful question, and I think you have to see that through the course of the book of Joshua, the whole plan of harem warfare fails. Mm -hmm. It fails in many respects. It fails in the fact that too many exceptions are made to the booty rule. Um, later on in the book, the booty rule seems to be totally ignored. Mm. Um, um, 
the the Israel fails to, to conquer and subjugate and exterminate the Canaanites. Uh, the story of the Gibeonites later on in, in Joshua is another example of a Canaanite tribe that by hook and by crook mm. uh, extracts a vow of survival from Joshua, which he cannot then violate, even though keeping the vow requires him to violate the law of harem warfare. And so these anomalies just pile up and accumulate throughout the book, right? Hmm. So uh, I, the way I read Joshua is that by the end of the book, the rule of harem warfare has just about unraveled. Mm -hmm. uh, it's impossible to fulfill it. It's impossible to keep it, which would very much reflect a Zitzim Laban a situation in life of Joshua's final composition in the exile, hmm. when Israel, which was once given the land as a gift by the Lord, has now lost sovereignty over the land and is living in the midst of uh, non uh, of of Gentile peoples and so forth. Hmm. So, how how does your question was how do I resolve the uh, refresh my mind? Exactly. Uh, how do you resolve the fact that it, it doesn't say what any of these people there, there's judgment that, right. is a, that is impending upon them, but it doesn't say what they've done that's wrong. I think the com the historical critical commentator commentator Thomas Dozman has this spot on. <clears throat> uh, Joshua is really about um, this book of Joshua is really about continuing the theology of the Exodus. And the target is not the Canaanite peoples as such in the end as harem warfare unravels, uh, but rather it is the uh, eradication of the Canaanite city-states and their kings. Joshua does not want to be a king. Josh, Joshua kills kings. And so it's a kind of a political theology hmm. that Joshua declines honors and uh, for himself. At the end of the book, he's awarded the title of Moses, Ebed Yahweh, servant of the Lord, right? And uh, uh, that's sufficient for him. So he retires to his own little family inheritance and go, passes from the scene, right? He doesn't try to establish a dynasty or anything like that, mm. or a fortified city. Mm. He goes uh, to settle in the country. And so the, the point of the, the judgment, the judgment that falls is not on the population, the people so much, Rahab and the Gibeonites illustrating that quite dramatically, but on the political system of the Canaanite city-states as mm. an extension of Egyptian hegemony at that time in history. Now, that said, how do you deal with the, I mean, because you do have Sodom and Gomorrah as a, a countertext here, or even uh, the story of Noah in Genesis uh, 6 through 9, where uh, they're pretty, well, at least with Sodom and Gomorrah, you don't have to guess what they've done wrong. You get a very spicy example that is, it seems to be indicative of other problems in those uh, that compound. Um so why not just say Jericho is something, you know, what's going on in Jericho is something like what's going on in Sodom. Uh, and, and I'm not referring to just the sexual aspect. I mean, the sure. fact that anybody would descend on a vulnerable group of people and treat them like that, that seems to be indicative that there are probably bigger problems in that community than, than just that one act on that one night. I guess theologically you would have to talk here about systemic sin, not simply individual sin. Yeah. You would have to talk about sinful systems, um, and that would be the 
in, inherent protest of the theology of the Exodus against all political establishments that hierarchically subjugate their own populations and turn them into a military machine for the conquest and exploitation of other peoples. And uh, that's how I read mm-hmm. the, the Canaanite city-states that Joshua is attacking and, and disestablishing in the process of carving out a new space for the tribes to settle on agricultural land uh, in central, central Palestine. Yeah, there is this... <clears throat> excuse me, this this kind of long-term question about Canaan, like why does it never foment into a single, you know, a single nation? Uh, and everywhere you go from north to south in Canaan, there are high-walled cities meant to protect themselves from the other high-walled cities. Right. <laughs> it seems like a very fractious, a, 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 along with the empires that roll through there later, uh, but, the, but it seems like a very fractious place. And uh, we're dying for kind of, you know, we wanted a laundry list of sins these and crimes these people are committing. Um, I do wonder what you think of uh, John Walton. I don't know if you've seen his work on this recently, but he's he's come out and said that there is no indictment at all of the Canaanites, that they did nothing wrong because they had no covenant with God and therefore they can't do anything wrong according to, because they have no covenant uh, with God. Uh, and, and this was really all about uh, establishing the people of Israel in the land, and that's it. Yeah, I've re- I read John Walton's mm-hmm. book on on this, and uh, in fact, I even conversed personally with him about it on mm. one occasion. Me uh, too. I don't, <laughs> I don't find his argument very persuasive. Yeah, because even though in the book of Joshua itself, there's not an indictment of Canaanite peoples for a particular particular laundry list of sins, the allusions backwards to Leviticus mm-hmm. and to Deuteronomy um, uh, make it, I think, abundantly clear. Uh, you would have to isolate Joshua as a autonomous historical event that has no literary or theological connections to Joshua and Leviticus Mm -hmm. to make John Walton's judgment about this, which I just don't buy. I think you have to read Joshua canonically in content. And it's very interesting. I mean, some scholars speculate that Joshua was inserted between Mm. an original order that went from Deuteronomy directly to Judges. Um, um, in any case, it is a bridge book that is going uh, from Deuteronomy into the history of uh, the monarchies and so forth, the time of the judges and then the monarchies. Um, so I think that you cannot, I think it's a mistake to try to historically, critically isolate the Joshua conquest and treat it, uh, as I said, autonomously without regard to its connections to the rest of the Hexateuch. Yeah, and I think it's very just linguistically the Hebrew uh, seem it feels so similar and dependent upon, uh, especially Deuteronomy, but um, yes. other other texts there in the, in the Pentateuch as well. Um, and it carries out this uh, rather expansive and uh, intriguing for all kinds of reasons covenant renewal at the very end. Uh, I wonder, well, two things before we get to the uh, renewal. Um, well, it's part of the renewal is you get this, uh, what a friend of mine, Matt Lynch, wrote this book on violence in the Old Testament, and he, he calls it the majority and the minority report. Um, 
you know, the question becomes, did they kill every last man, you know, every man, woman, and child uh, in these places, or did they not? I wonder how you think about that. I think according to the text of the book of Joshua, they clearly did not. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's— Flesh that out, because I think some people will be like, what? <laughs> Yeah, well, just read my commentary, yeah. and, and and read the, the the especially as you get to the second half of the book of Joshua, where it regularly reports about how the tribes failed uh, to uh, expel, to conquer, or exterminate various uh, remnants of the Canaanite population, um, and then uh, again how. Very interesting that instead of exterminating them, in many cases, we are told that the, the tribes enslaved the Canaanite population. Now, that is the profoundest violation of the intention of harem warfare. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think these anomalies in the book of Joshua just literarily, if you read carefully and closely, just continue continue to accumulate until you get to that dramatic conclusion in the 24th chapter. Hmm. I um, think when you get to that the, the conclusion of the 24th chapter where he specifically says it was not, you know, it was the hornet, which uh, I would draw back to Exodus, I think, is where the hornet is originally mentioned. Right. Yeah. Um, it's the hornet that went before you. It was not by weapons of war. Um, so it it actually seems to almost at the end, I, I don't want to say rewrite the stories, but it, it draws on a new sense of imagination about what just, what you know, what we just read, what just happened here. So when you're leaving the book of Joshua, uh, what do you believe, and especially you come into the first two chapters of Judges, it's clearly meant to dovetail uh, there. Um, what do you think is the overwhelming theological emphasis that we should be walking out of the book of Joshua with? Yeah, um, I would like to, again, stress the exilic situation in which mm. the book received its final composition, which particularly ac- accentuated that punchline in the 24th chapter. Uh, you cannot do it. Joshua mm-hmm. it, Joshua says, put these stones up. They will be a monument to the covenant between you and me. And this day I testify that you will not keep Torah. You will fail. And that would mean for the first readers of the canonical book of Joshua, they're thinking, long ago the Lord gave us this land uh, in centuries before and now we've lost it. Mm-hmm. Now we are, Book of Ezra, now we are slaves in our own land and others are kings over us, right? That That's the situation in life in which the book is finally com- put together. And at this point, Israel is looking backward and say, how did it go wrong? Mm-hmm. What did, what did, what went wrong? And the the real thrust of the book of Joshua is that the Lord fought for Israel when Israel was obedient to Torah. The Lord fought for Israel when Israel was uh, obedient to Torah, and that the gift of the land was conditional upon mm. that obedience. Mm. And if you if you act like a Canaanite city-state, you're going to get the same fate as the Canaanite city-states got yeah. long ago. That's that marvelous passage where Joshua appears to be magically transported into the midst of Jericho. Mm-hmm. 
in the beginning of the book. And he sees this ominous warrior standing across from him. And he bows down. He knows it's a it's a supernatural visitation. Um, and he finally gets up his courage and says, are you on our side or on Jericho's side? And the man and the figure answers, neither. Right. No. <laughs> One of I'm, the best answers to that question ever. And so, again, the point there being is that the Lord has his own agenda, which is articulated in Torah, which is the establishment of the Lord's kind of sovereignty over people, not on the model of Egypt or the Canaanite city-states, and that this um, gift of the land is therefore subject to the Lord's own agenda, which is the keeping of Torah. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit, and because this, what we've been talking about, is your Brazos theological commentary on the Bible. Um, you covered the Book of Joshua, <clears throat> excuse me, and these are uh, commentaries where they were asked, uh, typically theologians, uh, to cover a book of the Bible. Um, I've been involved a little bit in the analytical theology movement from the biblical side, and I wonder what you think of the state of theology, and I mean it in kind of the broad sense and systematic uh, you know, ethics and everything that goes on that side of the, or goes in that bucket for most people, but uh, you seem to know scripture pretty well. I, I'll be careful how I say this, not all systematic theologians know scripture that well. <laughs> you don't have to be careful saying that around me. I agree yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah. So I, and it's a concern uh, when I get in those circles and try to bring, or you know, basic points uh, of theology are brought up. And I said, well, how do you deal with the particulars of of the text as they, uh, the theology of Israel? I would say as they lay it and expound it out to us. And often there's just kind of gaping silence because they don't they've never they've never read those texts that closely or they they haven't included them in their theological thinking. So I wonder do you share that concern or you think I'm just chicken little here? Um and and uh what do you think might be a if you if you agree then what do you think should solve it or how would you allay my concerns? I think uh, more broadly to answer your question very broadly in the first place I think that disciplinary specialization has take, gone to such an extreme that we are now academicians in tiny little silos talking only to people within our own privileged group mm -hmm. and in language that no one outside the silo can understand or appropriate. Right. So I think, I think this is a real problem, not only in theology, but across the board. Yeah. And I do think, um, uh, for me, um, the theology is primarily the uh, sophisticated exegesis of Scripture. And I use the old-fashioned word exegesis as opposed to eisegesis, hmm. as opposed to reading into Scripture whatever I want to find in it, which I think is, in some circles in contemporary theology, think of reader response criticism, mm -hmm. you know, in which what basically, here's a text, now what do you do with that? I want to know what you do with it. Well, that tells us a lot more about you than it does about right. the text. And so so scripture as authority, scripture as, as um, a boundary setting for understanding the word of God uh, just evaporates in that kind of an approach. And I think that's a, a real disease. I also think by the same token that a lot of biblical scholars uh, have 
just a rudimentary knowledge of theology, just mm -hmm. almost zero, let alone a sophisticated knowledge of theology. How different that is from the previous generation mm -hmm. when you think of Brevard Childs right. or Gerhard von Rod, just or Klaus Westermann or something like that. You think about these greats of 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 biblical scholarship in the previous several generations and how different that is today. All people you mentioned whom we're still reading today because um, we look back and say, wow, how did they, how did they understand so many things uh, together at the same time? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Paul Henlicky, thank you very much for walking us through very quickly uh, Joshua and some of the thorny problems there. And uh, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for having me. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.